Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good Sunday morning. It is Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer and Brenda Alacy back with you after a week off. And I have to say... I hope my hearing's not going uh, at 31. However, I just sat in this chair after Randy, and I'm not saying Randy's much older than me, but after Randy sat in this chair for two hours and where he had the headphone volume was way too low for me. So I'm not sure if it's those earbuds when I run, I have my music up too loud, but uh, Brenda, I don't think this is a good sign. Joe, I think you got to lower the volume on those earbuds, my friend. Or you know what? Take them out completely and just enjoy some of the nature and beautiful scenery. Like you were telling me about running on those trails. Uh, pretty peaceful sometime to just turn it off. And listen, I know how difficult it is because I usually have something going on all the time. But <laughs> it's a real thing. You don't want to be part of those commercials that we're uh, promoting about tinnitus and all the other stuff. Yeah, especially with at hearing 31. loss. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, Wait till you're 32 at least. <laughs> <laughs> so Brenda, we were off last week. How was yes. your uh, fourth? How was your time off? Uh, it was quiet. Uh, it's been, you know, a very weird year for all of us. And uh, we just kind of laid low over the holiday and the weather has been so hot. I just went for a bike ride and, you know, tried to get some exercise in every day, but not the, the usual type of uh, holiday celebration to be sure. And this weekend, Joe, would be usually my favorite weekend right about now. Obviously, the dates vary from year to year, but this would have been the taste of Buffalo this year. Oh, I know. Oh. And uh, I really miss it. I, I enjoy, you know, obviously the feeding frenzy is great, but I also enjoy seeing a lot of uh, other folks who are judges. I'm, I'm usually fortunate to be asked to be a judge and see a lot of other media personalities and uh, political leaders and just folks in the community who are well known. It's part of the camaraderie of everybody uh, being there. And then, of course, enjoying the wonderful food and the diversity of the food that's offered in this community is uh, ever changing and evolving and, and really a, a wonderful asset to our community. So uh, I salute the folks from the Taste of Buffalo for trying to do it virtually and at least uh, they're making an effort to make it happen. So hopefully next year we'll be shoulder to shoulder again enjoying some fine cuisine on the streets of Buffalo. Fine cuisine and some adult beverages. You know, I also miss the week before the Taste of Buffalo when we see some New and old friends make their way through the studios, and every now and then they might leave a little uh, treat. Oh, yeah. Every day <laughs> leading up to it, I know that's a big deal at the studio, and 
Uh, and you guys deserve to have some delicious food. You get there early, and it's probably lunchtime for you by the time they arrive at what? Uh, 8.50? You're right. eight, ready for a full meal. The 8.50 lunch, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got a, a packed show today, Joe. I'm looking forward to talking with uh, New York Assemblywoman Monica Wallace in just a moment. Later in the hour, we'll talk with Buffalo Council Member Joel Farrelletto. And then in hour two, it should be fun. You and I will be joined by Carol Calabrese and Kevin Hardwick. Always fun to have those two on the show, especially when they're together. I can't wait to talk about the topics of the, let's say, week or last two weeks. Never anything short to talk about with those two. Oh, no doubt about it. And there's never a dull moment in politics and government and everything that's happening, uh, whether it's pandemic related or not. So uh, looking forward to jumping back into that. Yes, and on the line now, we have, uh, from the New York State Assembly, Monica Wallace. Monica, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Doing well, Monica. The first question I've been asking everyone during this, uh, this pandemic is, how have you been during the COVID-19 crisis, and uh, how's everything going along? Oh, thank you for asking that. Uh, we are fine. You know, we are, we are healthy, thank goodness, and uh, everyone in my family is doing, doing well. How about you? Oh, it's been great here, and we've got Brenda from her home studio. Yeah, Monica, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, Joe's at uh, Entercom, and I'm home in Williamsville. So uh, the BBC, as I call it, the Brenda Broadcast Center, (laughs) is up and running, and we really appreciate you taking the time to join us. You know, um, the Walden Galleria and other malls have been in the news lately, and they were finally able to reopen on Friday, and I know that you... Uh, along with many of your colleagues in government, have been pushing for that to happen. Uh, Why do you think it was so important, Monica? Well, as I mentioned uh, many times when I was advocating for it, you know, the Walden Galleria Mall, like malls throughout the state, are economic drivers for our community. Uh, The Galleria Mall employs over 4,000 people and um, contributes uh, about $45 million a year in sales revenue to our community. So it's a really important economic driver for our community, and I felt it was important that we make sure that we do everything we can to um, help it continue to endure throughout this pandemic. But that being said, I recognize there there were some concerns because malls are different than other facilities, and uh, we wanted to make sure that when people do return to the Gallery Mall, they do so in a very safe way. So um, I'm happy that uh, we were successful in advocating for the reopening, and uh, as you mentioned, it reopened this weekend, and I encourage people to go out there and and, uh, visit the Gallery Mall, but do so in a way that is safe and that follows the very thorough protocols that have been laid out by the owners of the Gallery Mall. Well, and one of those things was uh, an edict by the governor that uh, there had to be a particular type of filter in the HVAC system. How involved in that discussion did you get, Monica? Uh, so, yeah, I was involved in that discussion with the owners of the Gallery Mall and with representatives of the governor's office. Um, and actually, I've been doing a lot of research on that issue myself. Um, I know the Gallery Mall is very comfortable that they are able to meet those requirements. There is a lot of research being done right now about the issue of indoor air quality because it does seem there, you know, there is an opportunity to add an extra layer of protection against the virus by addressing that issue. So um, it's something I've been looking into myself, and um, I'm glad that the owners of the Gallery Mall have the ability to, to use uh, the enhanced uh, air cleaning 
that is needed. And I also think we should be looking at this issue more deeply as we all return, because unfortunately, living in Buffalo, we know we're all going to be indoors sooner rather than later. Right now, we're enjoying the outdoors. And I think being able to eat outside and enjoy the fresh air is one of the reasons we've been able to keep this virus in check. And I'm very, very deeply concerned about when we return to the indoors, what does that mean for indoor dining and for um, being inside all day long in your offices? You know, is there a way that we can try to protect people? So I do think this is something we should be looking at more thoroughly as a state. Monica, this this may be an awful question. I'm not sure you've ever had one set up like that. Uh, But with everyone wearing a mask in the mall, how important and why is having that extra HVAC filter at a mall that you don't have at, say, a Target or a Walmart? Well, uh, I think we're trying to figure out how, I think malls, first of all, they're similar to Target and to Walmart, but they're also different, right? You spend much more time in the mall. You're spending hours. I know personally, I have spent like upwards of, sad to say, like four or five hours in a mall at a given time. I've never spent that much time in a Walmart or or a Home Depot. Um, so that's one thing. Um, you know, they tend to be places where people gather in groups, um, and they actually encourage that. So, so those are, you know, they are, I, I do think there's similarities, and I do think there's differences. So um, I do think we should be doing everything we can to protect the public and recognizing that um, we, if, there, if there's a way to make sure that people have this extra layer of protection, we do that. And the malls themselves agreed with that. They were not complaining about that. Well, that was my question too, Monica. What kind of feedback did you get from the retailers and uh, anybody who happened to be there looking to shop till you drop? Did you talk to folks who were uh, at the mall and also retailers? What was their reaction? I talked to small business owners in the mall. Uh, you know, there's hair salons in the malls. There's there's stores. You know, we always think of like the big the big sort of chain stores like the Gap and Old Navy and things like that. But there are other stores that that is their only place of business, and they were very anxious to reopen. And that's why I was being very proactive about making sure that they be given that opportunity. And really, it was ultimately trying to find a way to get there. And I think that we were very successful in doing that. And I, you know, I, I applaud the, uh, the owners of the Galleria Mall and owners of malls throughout the state and the governor's office for recognizing everybody wanted to get to yes, and we just needed to find a way to do so in a way that we were not going to risk um, being like other states are right now. You know, you mentioned uh, that you've been in touch with the governor's office, and uh, I know there are a lot of businesses that are extremely frustrated that they can't open, namely gyms in particular. Uh, Do you think there will be a phase five, and and why do you think this is taking so long with no direction at this point for these uh, gym owners, among other businesses? When it comes to gym owners, you know, first of all, I, I do feel for them. It's a very difficult situation they're in. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's very intuitive to all of us to recognize that gyms are different than malls. They're different than, the, than other businesses. You know, you go to a gym, you're sweating, you're breathing heavy, you're moving from equipment to equipment. And they do have, contain a higher risk, I believe. It, it doesn't, you know, I'm not a scientist, but, and I don't pretend to be, but I think it's very easy to see how they have a higher risk in a way that other retail establishments don't. Um, and I, I know a lot of people are clamoring for us to open the gyms, but everyone who 
is asking for that is either a gym owner or somebody who likes to attend the gym. I've not heard any health experts say it's a good idea to open the gyms. If they start saying that, then absolutely we should, but I think that's who we should be listening to right now. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about schools reopening, Monica. I know you have a couple of kids in school, I believe one in high school and one in college. Uh, as a parent and also as a, a government leader, what are your thoughts on the idea of schools reopening? Well, I think I agree with pretty much everyone in our community that we absolutely need to do everything we can to reopen schools. We all want schools to reopen. I believe we need to have schools reopen. I have a daughter who's a teenager in high school, um, and so I feel this not only as a, uh, as a member of the community but also as a parent. I have a son who is in, uh, who's at University of Buffalo, so, you know, obviously I feel the same way about the universities. But I also agree and believe that we need to do so in a way that is safe. And um, so, and, and, you know, getting back to the thing about the, uh, the gyms, um, you know, it's obviously much more important to focus on making sure we re reopen schools safely um, over gyms, in my opinion. So, uh, so, so that's where I think our focus should be in the next couple of weeks is finding ways to allow for schools to be reopened in a very safe way. Um, and, and my job is also to make sure that schools have the resources that they need to do that, that they have the resources they need to get the personal protective equipment or the enhanced uh, transportation that they might need to offer to make sure that the buses aren't super crowded or um, to make sure that they have the, uh, uh, the, the resources for the enhanced cleaning and, and the PPE and so forth. So, yeah, I absolutely want to see schools reopen. I think we need to see schools reopen, but we also want to make sure that we protect students and faculty when we do that. I'd like to go back to the gyms real quick uh, because we're looking at uh, data from other states that are saying, and don't get me wrong, I love going to the bars, I love bars and restaurants, but w what we're hearing is that a lot of these cases, a lot of the spread has happened at bars. Well, in New York State, bars are open and not gyms. Maybe it's just me, but I haven't heard any other state say that gyms have been leading to the coronavirus spike. I don't think we have, I don't think people have said they haven't either. We don't know, right? And, and I think with the bars, I agree with you. I've, you know, I've, I think it's great that we have the opportunity to go outside and socialize in bars right now, but it's not a good idea to go clamoring in groups inside bars right now. And I think that that is dangerous. And that's again, gets to the point that I was making earlier about indoor air quality. Um, are there ways that when we all start going back into restaurants in the winter, we can make sure that we have our indoor air quality clean? I don't think that we have the science one way or the other about where gyms are, but I mean, to suggest that um, it's, I don't, I don't, I don't think that those states, I know those states are not in a good situation right now, and I don't think that they know why that is, if it's the gyms or the bars or both. Now, I hope this doesn't happen, but let's say that we see a spike in cases that we are seeing in other states around the country, Florida, Texas, California. Um, what would you say would be the first move? What should close first? Would it be going backwards through the phases, or would it be some other completely different setting to get back to lockdown? Well, that's an excellent question, and I hope to God that we don't find ourselves in that situation. But I don't think it's a matter of what I think we should close. I think it's a matter of what the health experts say we should close. So that's who I would look to, the epidemiologists and the scientists, to say, you know, where do you think we can get the greatest bang for our buck in terms of protecting our community? 
So I think those, that should be the people who are driving that conversation. And then as a leader, I would say, look, that's what they're saying, and we should listen to them. Monica, when do you go back into session? When Are you traveling to Albany at this point, or are you doing everything virtually? So we have uh, the ability to uh, do either. Uh, right now, when we first started and the pandemic happened, we could not operate remotely, but we put into, because we just had never had to do that, um, we had to put into place procedures that allow us to do that. So we have committee meetings that will be conducted remotely um, throughout this week, this coming week, and then next week we will be in session all week. Um, I haven't decided whether I'm going to, to continue to be here remotely or if I'm going to go to Albany, um, but uh, we have the ability to go to Albany. You know, obviously not everybody will be there. It's probably not a good idea for everybody to be there. I just have to look and see which of my bills are going to be on the calendar and whether I want to be in Albany to get the resources I need to argue, um, debate them, and so forth. Well, we wish you uh, continued good health to you and your family, and uh, we look forward to talking with you down the road right here on Hardline. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Absolutely a pleasure, and you both uh, be well, and um, I look forward to chatting with you again. Take care. Thank you Thank very you. much. That is Monica Wallace joining us here, part of our packed show. Coming up after the news break, we will speak, be speaking with Council Member Joel Ferraletto and... Also with Kevin Keenan. Coming up after the break, it's Hardline. It's Joe Beamer and Brenda Alacy here on News Radio 930 WBE. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast and welcome back to hardline here on news radio 930 wben joe beamer and brenda alacy with you here on a packed show so let's get right to our next guest from the Buffalo City Council, it is Joel Ferraletto. Joel, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me today. 
Hey, thanks for being on the show. And uh, the first question I always ask everyone is, you know, during this pandemic, the COVID-19 crisis, how have you and your family been? Thank you very much for asking. Um, I, I and my family have been fine. Um, we've been obviously been maintaining social distance, uh, working from home, but we've all been very healthy. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, it's great to hear, Joel. It's a challenging time for all of us, and uh, life goes on, right? And, and people are protesting, and there's more in the news these days than just a pandemic, including uh, the removal of the Columbus statue from uh, the West Side Park. Uh, tell me, what was the uh, what was the idea behind this sort of preemptive strike of taking down the statue before it was defaced or or toppled? So the Federation of Italian American Societies of Western New York was the original owner of the Columbus statue, and they gifted it to the city of Buffalo many decades ago to be placed in Columbus, in Columbus Park. So they, about two weeks ago, they had a meeting with city officials, and they requested that the city give the statue back to the Federation um, the original owner, the Federation, would put it in storage for the time being and figure out what to do with it, um, likely a private location. And also, the Federation would like to put up a new statue celebrating Italians and Italian immigrants at that specific location. So the city officials, myself, the mayor, listened to their requests, and we thought the requests were reasonable. And the Federation took the statue down on, on Friday, just a couple days ago. Joel, I know that um, a statue of Columbus was toppled by protesters and thrown into the Baltimore Inner Harbor on the 4th of July. And uh, a statue of Columbus in Boston, the uh, statue was decapitated. And there were other protests. Were you fearful that something similar would happen, something that dramatic at uh, Columbus Park? So that's definitely a concern that was brought up by the Federation. And after seeing what happened in other cities, um, there was certainly a likelihood that that could have happened in Buffalo. So the two instances you talked about in Baltimore and in Boston, and there have been statues being damaged and defaced all over the country, not just of Columbus. In, in Rochester, there was a Frederick Douglass statue that was toppled. Um, just a few days ago in Queens, New York, there was a statue of the Virgin Mary that was vandalized. And the Federation brought up, they did bring up that concern. And they also said that they, they wanted to take it down before there was damage to it. But also, they didn't want it to be a controversial topic right now in the city of Buffalo. And they thought that pro proactively taking it down um, would be the smart thing to do. Joel, uh, now that this statue has uh, been removed and we've seen, as you and Brenda both said, statues around the country uh, toppled, has there been any other either statues or monuments in the city of Buffalo discussed about possible removal? I have not heard any, um, heard any plans to remove any other statues in Buffalo. I haven't heard um, any calls or protests to, to remove certain any statues in Buffalo. I know last weekend, the McKinley Monument in downtown Buffalo was vandalized. There were, it was painted all over. There were vulgar words painted on it. And I know the, the city 
crew did a very good job in working and spending a lot of time and hours cleaning that up. Joel, uh, yeah, I mentioned to you uh, in the past that I'm a first-generation uh, Italian-American. My father came here from the old country back uh, many, many years ago and, and, and definitely encountered some discrimination and, and difficulties uh, acclimating to the U.S. Do you feel like this is um, uh, representative of some of the struggles the Italian-Americans have had when they came to this country, the, the statue? So as a fellow Italian, how do you view this? So there's a, a lot of Italian-Americans that have dealt with discrimination. They've been treated poorly um, going back to the late 1800s and early 1900s when a lot of Italians came to the United States. Um, they were treated so poorly that in the late 19th century, early 20th century, half of the 4 million people that came went back to Italy. And we there's a number of instances of discrimination that is well documented um in, even in, in world war ii a lot of italian immigrants had to carry cards that identified them as aliens of enemy nationalities and i after the press conference on friday i actually heard from someone reached out to my office and, and said you know we appreciate you bringing all of that up when my when that person's father came over in 19 in the late 1960s, they were subject to discrimination and that the individual heard really terrible stories about how their family was discriminated against. So Columbus Day, the Columbus statue for a lot of Italian Americans really represents the sacrifices that were made by their parents, their grandparents, their great grandparents, the contributions that Italian Americans have made to the United States. Um, pride in their heritage. So it really has a, has, to a lot of Italian Americans, it really has a deep meaning. Uh, Joel, I, before we switch topics here, I wanted to ask you about where this statue might end up. Uh, there was some talk that it may be in a museum or a, a museum like facility. Any idea where you think uh, that statue will reappear at some point? I, I'm not sure yet. It's my understanding that there are several different locations that have um, that the Italian Federation believes would be a good fit for it. Um, so I don't I don't know anything specific, and I'm sure there's going to be some a lot of conversations coming up in the near future on that. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about restaurants. You've played a key role in encouraging um, some legislation to allow restaurants to expand their outdoor seating. And uh, I assume this is a way to help restaurants survive. I know many are hanging by a thread during this pandemic. They've been hit very hard, that whole industry. Uh, what kind of, uh, uh, where, where are we in that situation right now? What kind of uh, uh, update can you give us on that? So before restaurants started opening in New York State, I saw what a lot of other cities were doing throughout the country where they were allowing restaurants to expand their outdoor space. So I submitted some legislation working on this on the Buffalo Common Council. The mayor was very supportive of this. He formed a working group to come up with an application and process and how to make this happen in Buffalo. There was a great working group put up of many restaurant owners, individuals from the tourism industry, and within just a few days, 
the city rolled out an application process, and this was before the state even allowed restaurants to open, and this allowed restaurants to expand their outdoor space, and there's already over 30 restaurants in the city of Buffalo that have done that. And this is so important because we have so many people in the food service industry in Erie County. There's approximately 50,000 workers in Erie County in the food service industry. Yeah, I I think that's a number that would uh, would be considered staggering. I don't think people realize how many are employed. I didn't know it was that high. Um, and in your district, the Delaware district, you have a lot of diverse offerings when it comes to food. Everything from small casual eateries to fine dining. Uh, what do you hear from your constituents in that regard, Joel, from the restaurant owners and the and the staff and workers? So the restaurant owners and the People that are working there are very happy, and we've received so much positive feedback about the expansion of outdoor dining. They've said it's extremely difficult for restaurants to, to be profitable right now. Unfortunately, I think there's going to be a lot of restaurants that close all over the United States, so we wanted to do anything we could to help give these restaurants a fighting chance in staying open because we're so fortunate to have so many family-owned businesses, small restaurants that have that are a fabric of this community. No doubt about it. And Joel Farrelletto, um, in the news a lot these days between restaurants and the Columbus statue. We look forward to talking with you down the road, Joel. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe and well. Thank you. Nice to have you on board. And uh, Joe, uh, we have some breaking news. The um, a uh, word came down just uh, a few minutes ago about uh, Bishop Edward Kimmick, who passed away. He was the bishop in Buffalo for eight years, starting in 2004, and news came down that he has passed away. So I know we'll get into that in just a moment as yeah, well. Yeah, Brenda, joining us right now is Kevin Keenan. He was the director of communications and editor-in-chief of Western New York Catholic during his tenure uh, as bishop, and Kevin joins us now. Kevin, good morning. Joe, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for coming on. And, and as Brenda said, we, we learned that late last night, Bishop Kemick uh, passed away after a brief illness. And what can you tell us about his tenure as bishop in Buffalo? He was a kind and, and decent man. And I, I, thinking about him this morning, I thought Bishop Kimmick never met a stranger. He had time for everyone. And regardless of what event he was at, it could have been a confirmation it could have been a mass at the cathedral or a meeting at a Catholic school. He was always the last person to leave. He would talk with everybody. He was interested in everyone. And he was also first and foremost a priest. And, and uh, I had written a column about Bishop Kimmick for the Western New York Catholic back when he celebrated his 50th year as a, as a, as a priest. And I, I, I think the headline said he was a priest's priest. And that, that really, in a nutshell, describes the type of type of man he was, the type of priest he was. Kevin, uh, he came up through New Jersey. I believe he was with Trenton, New Jersey, uh, born in that area and also worked in that area. Do you think that those sort of blue-collar roots really played well in western New York because we're both, uh, those cities are both in the northeast and both have uh, roots in the, in the blue-collar world, if you will? I think you're exactly right, Brenda. I had the opportunity to go to Trenton and his home parish when he celebrated the funeral mass for his brother. And it was a Polish parish. And if you 
closed your eyes and they dropped you in there, you would have thought you were in Buffalo's Polonia. So Trenton was very similar to Buffalo, and he was the first Polish bishop in the history of the Diocese of Buffalo. The 12 bishops before him were all of Irish descent, and it was a, a huge day for the Polish Catholic community in the Diocese of Buffalo when Pope John Paul II named him the Bishop of Buffalo. Kevin, there must have been a, a great feeling for him knowing that the Pope was Polish as well. What did he ever tell you about that with Cardinal Wotia? He he really loved to tell the story of when he would see the, the Holy Father and, and you know Bishop Kimmich spoke Polish and they would they would uh, converse in in Polish and he he used to regale us with the story that Pope John Paul II said, well, Kimetch, and that's how you would pronounce his last name in Polish. He said, Kimetch, that means peasant farmer. And, and uh, Kimmich always loved to tell that story. Uh, also, you know, he was preceded by Bishop Henry Mansell, Kevin, as you well know. And I'm curious, they seem like very different men, very different people. Uh, it seemed like Bishop Mansell seemed a little more um, reserved and uh, had a different background, of course. Uh, how would you compare the two? Did you think that the that Kimmich uh, was a whole different type of bishop from Henry Manziel? I mean, I've I've had the good fortune to to serve under a number of bishops, and Bishop Manziel was very formal, and everything was very very structured. Uh, when he was away from the public eye, he was much more relaxed. But in public, he was very formal. Uh, Bishop Kimmich was relaxed in public and in private. He he had a very easygoing personality. He loved to talk. Uh, one of the things that he did almost every day at the Catholic Center, he came down and had lunch with the employees. He never had lunch in his office. He would come down, and it would be a different table every day. And it was just a great opportunity, I think, for the bishop to to get to know the people that were working in the Catholic Center get an idea of what was going on in the diocese, and, and also just to forge some bonds of friendship. And uh, it was just great fun to have the chance to sit in a very casual atmosphere and, and talk to the bishop. And he was, uh, he was there a lot and uh, was all around that Catholic center and, and really enjoyed being with the people. Kevin, since he uh, stepped down from being the bishop, what was uh, Bishop Kimmich up to in the uh, last eight years? He did not have much of a public ministry and his uh, his back issue and his knee issue were well documented he had uh, surgery while he was the bishop and so he just was not as mobile as he would have liked and traditionally when a bishop retires they he spends a lot of time doing hospital visits nursing home visits and also uh, confirmations that uh, bishop head did over 50,000 confirmations during his lengthy retirement bishop Kimmich just never had that uh, that opportunity. He lived at the Cathedral Rectory down on Franklin Street downtown, and he lived with other with other brother priests. He did have a, a chapel in his uh, section of the residence, so he celebrated Mass every day in the cathedral. And he had notebook upon notebook upon notebook, keeping track of every single Mass that he ever celebrated from the very first Mass that he celebrated the day after he was ordained to the priesthood. It's such great insight, Kevin, to, to know uh, 
the, the different characteristics of a person, you know, a small thing like that, or even having lunch with the staff, I think speaks to the type of man he was. But his uh, tenure was not without controversy. Uh, I remember he was heavily criticized for downsizing parishes and missions. Uh, how did he react to that type of criticism? I think that he accepted it, and I think that he understood and you expected criticism when when a when a parish or a school would close if if people were not passionate about those then you would have to question your ministry but but people in the the diocese are very passionate about their parishes and he he often said that you need to read the signs of the times and then act accordingly and it would have been irresponsible for him not to do anything and he came up with a phased in approach and this, it was called the Journey in Faith and Grace, and it was a very collaborative process. The parishes were involved. There was a lot of discussion before any decisions were made, and then the decisions were phased in. At the end of the day, over the course of the five years that the Journey in Faith and Grace was implemented, it was the single largest reduction in the number of parishes in the history of the Catholic Church in the United States. But he also asked the, the, the faithful to not keep their light under a bushel basket. That was the term he used. And when parishes merged, if you looked at the successful mergers, it's where, uh, where the, the, the pastor and the leadership of the parish got the lay faithful to buy into the merger of the parish, and, and they created wonderful new faith communities. But it was not easy, but he, he never shied away from it. And Business First had a headline one time during this, and they said, and I think it was reflective of his gentle personality. They said he was wielding a velvet sledgehammer and, and <laughs> made him chuckle. But it was, a, I think, a really good description of how he handled uh, the journey in faith and grace. And how about when he had to close uh, 25 elementary schools? That had to be another very difficult decision for him to make. No, it was equally difficult. And, and again, you know, we, we were in a situation where it was a situation that you just couldn't sustain the schools and he understood that and it's just those things are not easy but that's that's what a bishop is part of what he is called to do a bishop is a teacher but he's also a leader and a leader of an organization that has schools and has parishes and you simply in this day and age cannot go with the status quo and and it's it's i think it takes great courage to make these difficult decisions, but he always involved people in the discussion process. It was not a top-down process. It was a bottom-up process. Kevin, how would you compare the Buffalo Diocese under the leadership of Bishop Kemick to how it is now in 2020? Well, I mean, now we're in very unprecedented times because of the, of the bankruptcy and the number of, of lawsuits that the diocese is facing. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a very different time. It's a very difficult time. I think Bishop Ed is, is doing a, a, a terrific job in guiding the diocese through some very choppy waters. It, it, it's, I, I, it's pretty difficult to compare them. It's just different, very different times. Um, a lot of tumult right now, and, uh, and, and, you know, you bring in the pandemic, and, it, and it's just exacerbated things. So it's hard to compare some, some pretty, what I would say, normal times to these days that we're living in right now. Kevin, I know uh, Bishop Kimmick retired. There's a mandatory retirement age of 75, and um, he was succeeded by Bishop Malone. 
And uh, Bishop Kimmick was then referred to as the Bishop Emeritus of Buffalo. Uh, were you surprised that he was still living in Buffalo, or do you feel like he just felt like he was so much a part of this community that this became home for him? Well, that, that tends to happen when a bishop retires, regardless of where he's from. He typically will stay in the diocese where he retires. Bishop Head did that. Uh, Archbishop Mansell has retired and, li- and, and from Hartford. He lives in the Archdiocese of Hartford. Uh, bishop Robert uh, Cunningham, who recently retired as the Bishop of Syracuse, lives in Syracuse. So that's pretty much the norm. It's, it's where they, you know, they finish their ministry. They, they have great love for the diocese, and people know them. I mean, if, he, if the bishop had gone back to uh, Patterson, New Jersey, where he, where he came from, he would have led a very different life. And, uh, you know, his friends were here. And so it's, it's pretty typical that the bishop does stay in the community where he retires. Uh, Kevin, obviously this is uh, very fresh news, but when you have time to reflect, um, I'm sure you'll have a bigger answer. In the meantime, what do you think Bishop Kimmick's legacy will be for the uh, Buffalo Diocese? I think it's, it's a legacy of, of restructuring the church and, and making much-needed changes, uh, but it's also a, a legacy of ministry to people, be they uh, migrants uh, in, in uh, ministry to prisoners, ministry to our, our parishes throughout the eight counties of western New York. And, and also, I think it, was, it will be looked on as his ministry of presence to people. So he made some very difficult decisions, and obviously most of the attention gets paid to the journey in faith and grace. But he, at, the, at the end of the day, he was a priest, and he was a holy and decent man, and he was always present to his people. And very lovely sentiments. Kevin, one last question as we wrap up here. We haven't talked to you in a while. How, uh, how have you been during this pandemic, during this COVID-19 crisis? I think like everybody else, just trying to adjust to uh, what's happening. And uh, we work with our clients through Keenan Communications Group. And it's been it's been very busy and working with some clients as they're reemerged from uh, temporary closure. So it's, it's been busy. It's it's an adjustment for everybody. And uh, I, I think that it's, uh, you know, we've been up to the challenge, but it's been uh, some pretty unusual times. There's no question about that. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Brenda, Joe, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Kevin Keenan joining us on the passing of Bishop Ed Kimmick. Again, if you're just joining us, Bishop Edward Kimmick did pass away just before midnight yesterday. He was the 13th bishop of the Buffalo Diocese. Coming up next, we have Kevin Hardwick and Carl Calabrese to talk about the happenings in politics the last few weeks. And Brenda, you know, because I think these two things might come up, I don't know, um, I thought we would end this segment playing a little bit of President Trump's comments to the media yesterday, the first time he wore a mask in public, and also talking about Roger Stone. Hello, everybody. It's very hot. It's very hot. So we're going to Walter Reed Hospital, and we're going to be seeing soldiers, our great heroes, our wounded, and some badly wounded, and they're incredibly brave and great people. And we're going to see also the warriors on the front line of COVID and quite a few of them. And we're going to spend some good time with them. And I look forward to doing it. And it'll be my honor to be there. What's the message by wearing a mask 
Well, I'll probably have a mask if you must know. I mean, I'll probably have a mask. I think when you're in a hospital, especially in that particular setting where you're talking to a lot of soldiers and people that in some cases just got off the operating tables, I think it's a great thing to wear a mask. I've never been against masks, but I do believe they have a, a time and a place. He didn't say that. No, the attorney general uh, about a week or two ago had made a statement, but that was long before anybody knew what I was going to do. Roger Stone was treated horribly. Roger Stone was treated very unfairly. Roger Stone was brought into this witch hunt, this whole political witch hunt and the Mueller uh, scam. It's a scam because it's been pr proven false. And he was treated very unfairly, just like General Flynn is treated unfairly, just like Papadopoulos was treated unfairly. They've all been treated unfairly. And what I did, what I did, I will tell you this, people are extremely happy because in this country they want justice. And Roger Stone was not treated properly. So I'm very happy with what I did. He, I commuted his sentence. And by commuting, he now has the right to go and, hey, look, he had a forewoman, quiet, quiet, quiet. He had a forewoman, he had a forewoman who was horrendous. She should have never been on the jury. The judge should have so ruled. The judge didn't do that. Take a look at the record. The judge didn't do that. Take a look at the forewoman. He should have had another trial. Roger Stone was treated very badly. Now, take a look at Comey. Take a look at McCabe. Take a look at the two lovers, Strzok and Page. Take a look at all these people that are walking around and they lied to Congress and they leaked and they did everything else, a lot of other things. Take a look at Biden, Sleepy Joe. Take a look at Obama and they spied on Donald Trump's campaign. Those are the people, let me just tell you something. Those are the people that should be in trouble. Thank you. Thank you. Well, just a little preview of what we'll be talking about in about seven minutes here with Kevin Hardwick and Carl Calabrese on Hardline with me, Joe Beamer, and Brenda Alacy after the news with Alan Harris. How many names can I say before the break here on <laughs> WBEN? T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.